Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to my favorite time of the week. And we're very lucky to have uh, an old friend of mine, Alistair Kett. Alistair and I um, worked together in PwC and we got uh, together in a, in a club which brought in ex-forces people to share their views on leadership. And we've stayed in touch since. Alistair uh, was a very successful infantry officer before his time in PwC. Then he worked advisory in the airline industry, dealing with risk and crisis management, very relevant for today. And he's been in PwC for 20 years and he's been a partner for 12. And so, Alistair, welcome. It's great having you on the show again. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. When you say 20 years, it seems like uh, seems like quite a high impact statement. It's been, uh, yeah. it's been the past 20 years. It seems like only yesterday that we were that we were working together. But no, lovely to be here. Great. And, and uh, Ben and I were quite interested in, you know, what's been the impact for you of not only COVID-19 that's been going on, but, but just there's this such a cauldron. You were talking about this earlier. I'd love you to talk a bit more of different events going on in the world that has a huge impact on everybody, but has on you. But, you know, take it from personally for what's going on for you and the family to then wider in the role and things like that. What's going on? Oh, for sure. So, um, hey, look, we all, we all come at this through the, the filter of our own experiences, right? And I think that there are elements of me that have been spending some time to prepare for the uncertainty that, that the past few months have, uh, have brought about. So in, in some senses, I felt a little bit more comfortable than I thought I might have done had I not prepared. But that's at a relatively superficial level because I think right now, um, the combination of not just COVID, but a recession, Brexit, uh, the complications that are being brought about with our relationship with China, and what's going on in America with the presidential election and, and the sort of, I guess, the sort of rise of, of, of elements of nationalism that we've seen as a result of all of this. It, it creates a quite an unpleasant sort of cauldron of uncertainty. Mm. Uh, so, you know, as a father and a husband uh, and a businessman, you know, all of those things combine. And, you know, I, I think there are aspects of getting through this that I've I've actually taken positives from. I think we, you know, everybody can, uh, I, haven't, I haven't taken up yoga or, or learned Mandarin, but I have spent time at home in a way that I haven't done previously in my entire life. So from that perspective, at a, at a sort of superficial level, it's worked well. I think like so many people though, we are now right in the middle of quite a unpredictable set of circumstances, all of which when you draw on all your experience in that filter that I referred to a moment ago, leave you with a sort of sense of unease that we are still very much in the fight and, and actually nobody's really sure where this one's heading. No, and, and you just, as you were talking there and before, we were talking about the huge socioeconomic impact. I mean, it, back to my MBA, PESTLE, wasn't it? Political, economic, yes. social, yep. technological, legal and environmental. We've got the whole issue of Black Lives Matter, equality, diversity mm. uh, and inclusion, which really must be uh, faced into at last. We've got the environment and all that's going on. I mean, it, it literally is a, a perfect storm of all sorts of things going on at the same time. 
And if you look back into 1929 and the, the depression that happened there and all that followed on, goodness, all we need now is a sort of war with China or Russia, and we've got the whole lot. Um, but but what's been your experience about dealing with the crisis? What advice would you give? There's a you know there's a lot of people listening to this live. There'll be more people listening to this uh, when we when we put it up on YouTube, and also there'll be more people listening to it as a podcast. What do you think? Um, is the practical tips about surviving and thriving in a crisis? Because you've been in a number of them. Give, give, give us some practical tips. So um, I think, first of all, there's no, <clears throat> there isn't a sort of blueprint that you follow in these circumstances. And I think back to, you know, where we've, we've had sort of sudden and unexpected events, things like the, I remember the Icelandic volcano, 9-11, um, foot and mouth disease, uh, you know, they're all things where the economy has overnight or relatively quickly been hit in an unexpected way. And I then think about I was out in the Middle East during the Arab Spring um, and uh, obviously my time many years ago back in the military. You had to deal with the sort of the unexpected. Um, and I think the difference now has been that in almost all of those circumstances, there was a timeline that you could predict. There was an element of of certainty about where you were going to head and 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 what sort of phases of time you might operate within we, we kind of knew that the volcano wasn't going to keep going forever right we we, we hoped it wouldn't and, and after about eight or nine days things settled down right now we're all operating in in a real sense of uncertainty there is you look at the way that government has led and there will definitely be lessons learned from that um, and the decisions that were made and the timelines that those decisions were made, they're reflective of the fact that the data and the insight and the predictability was just not present. So my advice around that particular component is stop worrying about what might be, because unless you've got certainty, trying to predict in this environment is not particularly helpful. Um, the uh, old uh, uh, Will McRaven in his book, uh, you know, Make Your Bed. He talks about one evolution at a time, and that evolution could be, you know, in business terms, it could be a year, it could be six months, or it could be three months. I think nowadays, and, and I personally, in trying to adapt this, your evolutions can be as short as a few hours. If you're making if you're making decisions, you've got to operate in the in the data set that you've got, and you've got to be comfortable knowing that that will almost certainly generate a higher risk profile than perhaps one you've worked with before. But but accepting that that is the only realistic approach to dealing with the levels of uncertainty and ambiguity that we're operating with is, is a sort of human change that people will need to make. And those that I've seen that have made it quite quickly are perhaps thriving, are perhaps doing better. And, th and those that are still trying to work out when the vaccine will come or whether or not uh, a particular treatment will be available uh, or, or indeed whether or not the recession will be a V-shape recovery or a U-shape or a W-shape, it's useful and it's certainly helpful to have a speculative conversation around potential outcomes. But in terms of practically dealing with it, I think it's here and now. It's one evolution, and it's recognizing that that's perfectly fine. You're not you're not being. Yeah, and and I think you've triggered in me two thoughts, uh, Alistair. One is that all the training that you and I had with scenario planning and crisis management, and what if this happens, we'll respond to that way. What if this goes on and this, and what else could what hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Um, and then the other work is a bit of neuroscience by Dr. David Rock and the mnemonic SCARF, S-C-A-R-F, where he says to help people think well, 
in, in uncertainty and fear and that fright, um, freeze, flight, fight mode. Um, can't say that after a few drinks <laughs> and create more psychological safety. The mnemonic scarf, S-C-A-R-F, will help others think well and uh, create in this. I love that idea of one evolution at a time from Admiral Will McRaven. Um, that you've got to create um, uh, in, in scarf is sort of status firstly. So you lift the other person's status to help them think well, and you humbly drop yours a bit so that they're not intimidated by you and psychologically unsafe. The next one is certainty. Well, you're in a crisis. So what certainty can give? Give them what you can, what, what evolution you have, some timelines, but always keeping them updated because it does change. Autonomy, give them as much freedom as you can and delegate it so decision-making is done at a lower level. But the decision evaluation in that great book, um, uh, Leadership is Language, um, Admiral David Marquet's book is, is great after his turn the ship around. Uh, and then relatedness, is it, do, they, do they feel that you're a friend or a foe? And finally, fairness. If there's no fairness, people don't think, well, they feel great injustice. And that's where Black Lives Matter and that lack of fairness in, in what's going on in society is coming through. What, what thoughts do you have from, from that sort of just that mnemonic scarf and, and, and um, neuroscience? I mean, it certainly resonates, right? And I think um, there's an element as well, which is just around your own personal experiences. Because I think when you, when you lay uh, a crisis like COVID has generated on, uh, on the plate of lots of people, the first thing that people will do will try and relate it to something that they've experienced before um, and, and act accordingly. And that, in some ways, is the certainty component has got to say, OK, well, I, I know that if I do this, I'll be safe. I know that if I go in, and I think that manifested itself in some ways in the sort of early days of hoarding that we saw, you know, the supermarkets. And then, and then thereafter, I think it's manifested itself in slightly different ways where people are quite... Uh, um, openly stated, you know, I'll be fine, and regretted it immediately as they've, they've, they've damaged their branding by by trying to sort of dismiss what is clearly a very uh, a dangerous pathogen uh, that circulates in society. And um, and I I sometimes wonder whether that combination of certainty uh, and what you might call ego, or or you might call you know self. Can, can create quite a dangerous combination in the wrong people. Um, yeah. Because what they tend to do is they will rush to a decision and they'll rush to a decision that is not informed in the way that we were discussing a moment ago. It's not, it's not based on the here and now. It's not based on the facts you know. It's based on a projection as to what they're pretty sure will happen. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when you start getting into problems. Um, but I think any, any comfort that people can take either you know, on a day-to-day -day basis or in leadership positions I think in some ways, these past these past few months, it's been it's been a force multiplier because of the connectivity that this has generated. The the weirdness has been that so many people have been put into a sort of state of suspended isolation, and yet so many people I talk to are feeling more connected with their colleagues and clients, and in many ways families than they have done previously. And I think from a from a socioeconomic perspective, that's going to be something we'll look back on in in times to come and say, well, you know. What, what, what was the driver behind that? And why did it take what's happened for us to understand the importance of comforting each other in the way that we do? And I, I suspect that will be around for a while. Yeah. And um, it, it is interesting. Dan Snow, in his history series, which I'm enjoying as a podcast, interviewed a historian looking back at the 1918 pandemic. And what's the lessons from that for today? Because 
he who's not prepared to learn from history is up to make the same mistakes. Now, each time it's always different and the world then was different from now, but people were rushing to celebrate the armistice and then they all contaminated each other in Manchester and Liverpool right. and things like that. Whereas they <clears throat> don't come together, stay away, don't do it, but they still did it. And then, you know, hundreds more died. Um, and, and and the lessons from that in, in something which began in China and spread, every said it began in Spain, the Spanish flu. No, they just, they just monitored it. That's why they got the name. It didn't even begin in uh, Kansas City uh, in a hog farm. They thought it actually came across from China historically. But there's, there's lessons that we can take from our historical experience. What other things do you think with all that's going on, this cauldron of different events, um, what, what do you think sort of economically will happen to different industries, like your own old industry yeah. of airlines? How, what do you think is going to go on there? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's two things I think I'll talk to there. One, we'll, we'll come to the industry perhaps in a second, but you did trigger a thought there, which is around, you know, this is a global pandemic, and yet the responses have almost uniquely been national. Um, and I can't help but think that at some point in the future, the, the lack of, you know, we were talking about running a global economy. Everybody thought globalization existed. There was going to be seamless trade in between all these various nations and states and companies. And many companies set themselves up globally with, with, the, with that in mind. I think the past few months have demonstrated that that hasn't been the case. Um, when you look at, um, I mean, even just the, uh, the Remdesivir buy-up by the US, you know, in the way that it basically just cashed in and, and took all of what, what is you know, perceived to be a, a helpful treatment, you know, that, that's a global player acting in a very uh, nationalistic way. Um, and, and that leads me to what I think we're going to see more of within industry. Um, I mean, a lot of companies are operating in countries where national debt has skyrocketed to fund furlough schemes, to fund bailouts, to fund all the support mechanisms which have had to be put in place. And that will drive inevitably demands from states to recover those funds through whichever way they can. Some of that will obviously involve international trade and some of the, you know, the, the delicate balance between tariff and incentive will, uh, will, will need to be carefully thought through and, and good luck to those uh, responsible for that because it's not going to be easy. But for, for companies, um, there are, they are now, for all the reasons we talked about from a, 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 an economic and fiscal perspective, facing tremendous challenges. I, I'm, I'm not immediately subscribing to this concept of revenge shopping that, that people are talking about. As soon as lockdown is lifted, everyone's going to go out and blow loads of money. I think society's smarter than that. They recognise that that you know we are going to face some economic hardships, and and spending money unnecessarily isn't necessarily right. Um, but I also think that we will find a whole bunch of at the moment um, unexpected some some uh, issues around supply chain that go beyond challenges companies have had to face before um where you you know if you're if you're in the manufacturing industry typically you will have a bunch of oems who are responsible for building your constituent you know building your constituent components and uh and within them a lot of organizations will not have tremendous resilience within that they will get components a from supplier a quite often overseas and they'll bring that in and they'll assemble somewhere else and then they'll move and distribute through another through another model and um, it only takes one or two of those companies within your supply chains who either have their own supply issues or have their own liquidity issues or find themselves subject to some new tariff or, or export or import tax. And, and that suddenly can, can bring about the demise of a company. 
Um, and organizations that are ahead of this, and we're working with quite a few, and I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to see, see the real thinking behind this within organizations, they are, they are doing two things. One, they're, they're really doubling down on supply chain resilience. They're looking at that exact point that I've talked through, and they're making sure that they can use things like 3D printing, they're looking at alternative supply, they're looking at how they can potentially vertically integrate, they can acquire their supplies if, if the economics and the multipliers work for them. But they're also looking at what they actually do in the market. And the really smart organizations, particularly those in the production space, are just drilling out now and taking out their non-core businesses, businesses that were perhaps innovative or startup or looking to expand into new spaces, which are unproven, are, are at risk of just being closed down or divested. And, and I think we'll see more and more organizations going back to what we might, and I hate the cliche term, but might go back to basics. You know, if you're in a, if you're in the automotive business, you're going to produce vehicles and you're not going to span out into other things. Yeah. Um, and there's going to be there's going to be some casualties of that, both organizationally and to your point as well around climate. You know, the, the world is still fueled by carbon and it's going to be very difficult for economies to kickstart and pursue channels which 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 look after the climate. And I'm worried about that because I think, you know, we've made some commitments as a, as a globe and we need to stick to them because what could happen will put COVID into, into you know, very small focus. Yeah, and it is interesting that um, we're seeing people make decisions on non-discretionary spend. And one of them is obviously very relevant to this conversation. They're going, we can't afford to develop our leaders. We're going to stop development of leaders. And, but this is the time when leadership is more important than ever. But they're going, no, no, we'll just stick to our core knitting. We'll just do that. And they've just got to keep working. I remember when I joined um, IBM from PwC when they bought us. And they said, um, you, you were doing very well before as a consulting arm, but you're going to have to make twice as much money. And until you do, we're not going to develop any of your leaders. Well, what happened? We all went... HR director said to me, when they stop developing, you run for the hills. And a number of organizations think it's a really good idea to save money by not developing their people, their leaders particularly. But but we need really good leadership at all levels, not just, a, you know, the busy CEO making good decisions. You, you need people to to make decisions at all levels. What's what's your own view on that? Um, so I think it's fascinating that this, uh, this has been such a huge sort of uh, exercise in many ways of just being able to observe how society operates in these difficult circumstances and from a leadership perspective there are quite a lot of people that in the public domain and in my professional network and that work with me who have stepped up in a way I just would never have imagined them to. They've, they've demonstrated in my view a really great combination of decisiveness, moral courage, uh, empathy um, all the things that you need in this environment. And then there are, sadly, as is always the case, there are others who are perhaps um, more suited to leadership in a more transactional environment. Um, not to say that, you know, one's right or one's wrong. It's just when you see this shifting, the shifting sands of, of the ecosystem you're in, you see different leaders coming to the fore and others perhaps going back into the shadows of it. Um, and I, I, you know, I, you know, I'm a huge uh, proponent of leadership uh, training and development continuously. And, and I think one of the really big lessons that we'll take from this is that the next generation, the sort of not the necessarily the school or university leader leavers, but but that sort of you know mid twenties to late twenties group, um, you know they are hardworking, they're intelligent, and they've grown up in a much more digitized, much more connected world than perhaps my generation. 
And they've been able to witness leadership through a crisis. And they've been able to participate and, and act as leaders. And one thing that I, I think has definitely happened this time around is that that more traditional leadership hierarchy has been flattened in a way that, that, that I think is quite encouraging. This concept of servant leadership, this concept of, of you know, self-leadership, I've seen so much more of it from that next generation that it's generated a, a real sense of confidence that uh, as these individuals move through their careers and their personal and professional lives, they're going to draw off this experience in a way that, A, will make them profoundly better qualified for the next thing, whatever it is, because we know there will be at least one and many more, um, but also just that sort of level of personal accountability and responsibility. It, it's, I mean, there's, there, there are a few positives to take out of this, but one, I think, is giving people an opportunity to experience a crisis and lead in it or witness good leadership and bad leadership and draw their own conclusions. Um, you can't orchestrate that in a classroom. You can't, you can't talk to somebody about what that would be like. You have to live it and experience it. And by doing it, I think we'll find that hopefully it will reignite a conversation about the importance of leadership. And of course, it should put more, more of a surgical focus on the need to develop it. Yeah, great. We're talking of leaders. We've got, um, we'd ask the leaders listening in, please post up your questions. Let's have loads of them for uh, Alistair to answer. Maybe uh, we've got two old friends of ours, Sean Taylor, who does an awful lot and does a great post on a Friday, which I love, and uh, his review of the, of the week, and Darren Winder. Perhaps, um, Ben, do you want to put up uh, Darren's question and we could get uh, Alistair just to help? Sure, I should read it out. Alistair, do you think companies should build up cash reserves like the banks have? Had to do it. So lots of companies are living on borrowed money. It's a great question. I mean, but for a, quite a long time now, probably since 2008, when the, the global financial crisis really hit, this concept of cash is king uh, has been thriving through companies, right? But my view is that um, the efficient allocation of capital and the cost of borrowing at the moment would, would steer me towards a new way of looking at how you use your, your, your capital as a business. Um, and, you know, whether or not you need to build up cash reserves for me would be driven predominantly by your, you know, what you do as a business and what your balance sheet is looking to uh, where it's looking to go in the future. Um, so what your demand is looking like from your market. And uh, and I think also just potentially about, you know, what your credit history and what your facilities are like with, with banks. So, you know, if you're established and you're doing well um, and you've got good facilities with banks, then. You know, having a, a sensible liquidity position, a sensible cash flow position um, would be worthwhile. But I also think that, you know, if you've got that background, then there are opportunities to invest and opportunities to pursue. So um, your point around borrowed money, I think there is a I mean, again, this is a difficult question, but a lot of organizations have, have furloughed their furloughed their people for perfectly good reasons. And. I I will be interested to see how the government comes out of this and what their expectations will be of those companies that have used the furlough scheme. Um, because I think it'll be quite difficult for organizations to be, you know, declaring huge profits and sharing dividends with their shareholders if they've taken, you know, six months off furloughed uh, benefits into, into their balance sheet. Yeah, I think some have, have used it um, with a lack of integrity just to um, bolster up their companies. Sean says the answer is often to buy in. What do you reckon to that? Um, again, I mean, you, you know me well, Jonathan. I, I'm always sceptical about giving a, 
a very simple answer to a simple question like that. Um, look, there are opportunities all over the place at the moment. There's no question uh, around that. Um, I think, you know, my my instinct is that it's going to take another two or three months for the UK, for UK PLC to really understand where the economy is going to go and what, what we're going to do with that. Um, I think between now and then, um, there will be there will be some opportunities to see, you know, uh, the green shoots that might be worth investing into and, and chasing down. Um, but I'm naturally uh, a cautious individual in that space. So my instinct would be, you know, don't don't view this as being a, a, a market without opportunity. There will there will definitely be opportunity. Yeah. But I think it takes another month or two before we get some degree of uh, certainty around where or, or, or increased certainty, not not full certainty around okay. where, where the markets are going. Great. And, and we keep encouraging people to post up questions as they have for you. And before I hand over to Ben, a couple of areas I'm interested in is, you know, leadership's been at the heart of, of you as a young man when you were trained at Sandhurst and, and been an infantry officer with the Fusiliers. But um, if you were to pick a, an inspiring leader, anyone you want, uh, the qualities that you admire, I loved your um, your focus on doing the right thing and moral compass, or as I call it, MQ, and, and that um, the, the, the three that you have, stay humble, stay hopeful, and stay hungry. That's really, that's really resonated for me. Perhaps you could expand on that a bit. And really, when you've been with a team that's been good in a crisis, um, what, what were the qualities? So the individual and the team, perhaps you talk about that. Sure. Um, I mean, I've been really, really privileged to work with um, some phenomenal leaders, right? So it feels it feels a bit odd to call any one of them out. Um, but but interestingly, not that long ago, um, probably just at the tail end of last year, I um, I saw that one of my old teachers had uh, had retired actually from school. Now, anyone that remember, you know, I wasn't a great pupil at, at school. I sort of somebody know, asked me, were you at Birmingham? Were you, were you yes, at I, I, went to, I went to school in Birmingham. Yes. What was and, the school uh, called? King Edward's Birmingham. Yeah, they were at school with you. Somebody who knows you said, oh, I think I was at okay. school with him. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I was a bit of a class clown there, right? And uh, I was surrounded by very intelligent, very smart people. And um, and uh, one of the teachers there, um, I think he caught that in me. Quite a few of them did, but one in particular. And he he was one of the few teachers that I think sort of guided me in the right direction. He he he. He realized that high-end academics wasn't going to be for me. But I think he saw something in me. He saw that I was very keen in the military. He played his part in helping me get the, the scholarship that, that helped me through the, the next few years at school and uni. And um, and I actually pinged him a note on his retirement just to sort of say, you know, you won't remember me. But I just wanted to let you know that I think of you often. And uh, he was my rugby coach as well. And, and some of the words you shared with me then, at the time I didn't realize, but I look back now, you know, 35 odd years later and I realized that actually th that was just profound leadership because it had been very easy for him not to do that and I think the teaching profession goes a bit unnoticed in that space actually because a lot of people will only get to my stage of life and, and realize that yeah um, your points around teams of teams right I talked a little bit about that uh uh on, on other calls I think the um this concept of positions on the pitch is is something which uh, one of the old, uh, in fact, it's one of the GE uh, business CEOs used to talk to me about. He, he always said, you know, people need to know their position on the pitch and leader is just a position on the pitch. 
And I, I, I think that's a really, I've tried really hard to sort of apply that where I've worked in teams or where I've been a leader of a team because, you know, you, you can quite easily, and you see this all the time, that as soon as somebody is appointed into that role, that they adopt a different persona and, and it, they lose their authenticity and it makes it very, very difficult. But I would say that, you know, certainly when I was working out in the Middle East, we, uh, we made a, you know, a call to open some new offices in Iraq and close some offices in, in Iran and subsequently Syria when, when the Arab Spring was going off. And I can remember the sort of teams that I was working with out there, different nationalities, different uh, backgrounds, different cultures and belief systems. But actually, you know, when, when things weren't going perhaps as smoothly as they should do, Everybody got the mission. Everyone understood where we needed to go. And I felt really proud to be part of a team at that point mm-hmm. where, you know, lots of differences and difficulties were just put aside because it was clear we needed to make some some important decisions quickly. Um, so I think that's a uh, I think that's a lesson. And it, it does tie in with that, that you know, strap line of it, it's actually expanded from, I think, when you're uh, mm-hmm. I think the, the phrase that I heard, and I'm a sucker for inspirational quotes, so I can't help it, but the phrase I heard, I think, is when you're when you're leading, be humble. When you're losing, uh, be hopeful, but always but always be hungry. And and yeah. that for me is that sort of if you can balance each component of of the emotional state you're in, it, it, it just plays out pretty well and it helps keep you grounded. I, I love that quote. Yeah. And um so let's go on to um to Ben um, with uh, a few of the um, questions. But Ben, over to you. Great. Great stuff, Alistair. Really great to have you on board. We've got a few just quick fire questions to keep us keep us busy. Um, so if you're, if you're ready, Alistair. Yeah, um, here we go. <laughs> we put them in three buckets. And this is all yeah. about just sort of uncovering some secrets to your success, some things that you have as habits um, that have uh, helped you ju- yeah. during your journey. So just to um, kick off, so you, you've experienced um, both good times, bad times. How do you stay healthy both um, mentally and physically um, during, during these times? So, I mean, uh, and I've been taught this, right? This isn't anything I've concocted. It, knowing your physical state, actually consciously checking in on your physical state and your mental state is a really important thing to do. Now, I haven't, you know, embarked on the luxuries of meditation or anything like that, but I do check in. I know that when I'm hungry or when I'm thirsty, I can be hopeless to be around, right? So for me, <laughs> consciousness of my state is something I really push on, right? Um, and that means that sometimes I need to take myself off. I need to really focus on hydration or I need to focus on exercise. Um, and I would say in the past three months, I've, you know, re-energized in a way that I, you know, I've enjoyed doing. And that's been through certainly daily exercise, a run or weights or a combination, but I've also removed stimulants. Um, so whilst I'll still enjoy a, a, a drink every now and again, I, you know, I stopped drinking coffee two or three months ago. And I've done that previously as well. And people tell me, you know, in the past that when they've done it, they find a, a sort of certain clarity. And I've been pretty dismissive of that. It's true. You, you know, I think mentally I feel a bit more sort of high definition when, when you take any of those sort of stimulants out. So, Hopefully that's sort of a bit of a combination to uh, to stay uh, stay in the game. I've got to try that. I I um, had the opposite experience recently. I went went a day without coffee because we just didn't have any, and yeah. got a terrible migraine. I think I yeah, you will. Do, you, you, there's a, there's a sort yeah. of two or three day window where you mm. feel like death, but that's actually your body saying, 
you become you addicted. <laughs> you're addicted. I've got you know, I find I find drinking wine by the by the <laughs> I was going to say yeah, wine. Yeah. <laughs> it is actually uh, yeah, yeah. cranberry juice. I quickly add to the the non-alcoholic members. Okay, back over to you. Yeah, no, that's um, that, that's a good point. Good, um, and uh, we always uh, move to he- to wealthy at this point. So obviously, there's lots of people who are going to be in, in in pretty tough situations now and uh, for the coming months. So, is there any piece of advice that you that you've given or have have got about money which you'd, you'd um, like to pass on? Um, it's tricky, isn't it? So, I think I mean I do remember somebody saying to me years ago, "There's no pockets in coffins," right? Which I uh, which I sort of, you know, I remember sort of thinking there is a bit around here and now, you know, we, we, we are, I think our generation has been brought up to sort of, you know, say you need certain sets of circumstances around the future, but actually for many of us, that's been quite difficult to, to orchestrate because we didn't have final salary pensions like our generation ahead of us had. And, and the generation behind us just aren't even thinking around that because things like house prices completely negated. Mm. But do you think there is something about, you know, the here and now and living within your means for here and now, not worrying too much about the future, not worrying about, you know, where you are, but just just applying that that principle. Um, and then the other thing is, is a number of people, you know, this phrase money doesn't make you happy. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I sometimes get a bit irritated by that, not because money does make you happy. I've seen people, you know, with vast amounts of wealth be incredibly unhappy and and vice versa. But I think understanding the sort of toxicity of cash and money and how it can drive real unhappiness because of comparative wealth mm. if you can if you can understand that and get to grips with that i remember a guy we 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 you know spent a lot of time living in london and one of my neighbors was just sort of talking about how he felt you know out of place within his set because everybody else was so rich and yet he was he was very well off and and I didn't say anything, but I remember at the time just sort of thinking it's it's an odd environment and lots of people are driven by that. I remember the, uh, I think it was a CEO of one of the banks years ago on Radio 4. He was brought in because they'd done a survey um, across all the bankers in London to say, you know, how much money do you need? What's your number as people refer to? Oh, yeah. And he said, you know, I've got an answer. And so he was brought onto Radio 4 and his answer was, you know, we asked 10,000 people and their answer was just a little. No, they, they couldn't come up with they couldn't come up with a number because if you say it's x or y you then say and will that be enough for your sort of future provisioning oh no i need a bit more for that or i'll <laughs> for that and, and it's it's sort of the reality is and i think this is this past few months has, has hopefully sort of brought people a bit more into the moment <clears throat> and uh and living in the moment economically however flippant that seems i think is probably healthier for your mental state mm. than worrying about what might be because nobody really knows it yeah, yeah. When money becomes the the, the goal, mm. it, it's a pretty hollow existence, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Staying, staying with that, Ben, um, I found a lot of the work when we work with people on what gives their life meaning and purpose. Mm. Uh, and and one of the guys rather pathetically said, um, so I said, well, you know, what's, what's your life purpose? He said, uh, p- paying the mortgage. I said, really? I mean, is that really why you're here on the planet? For goodness sake. And, and this thing about comparative and competitive. Some people are competitive, some are comparative, some are competitive and comparative. But this like, oh, I'm not happy because you know I'm poor. Compared to who? You earn, you know, 1.2 million. Oh, well, my boss earns 1.8 million. Well, you're never gonna be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you fired me off. You fired me off. Back to you, Ben. <laughs> Sorry. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, good. So just sort of final, final one on this. We always like um, a piece of wisdom that you strive to live live your your life by. Yes, this um, and I don't. I I strive to live by it. I'm not. I'm not convinced I do. But but knowing yourself, which uh, is something that I, you know, I think at different points in my life I've dived into that to really sort of mm. understand. You know, I, uh, you know, I think I understand my belief system and my values now, um, and I find them challenged on a daily basis because that's the world we're in. Um, a phrase that Jonathan's heard before, you know, which is, you know, if you're going to work in the dark, make sure your moral compass has a backlight. When when uh, an old friend of mine said that to me, I just found myself sort of stopping in dead and thought, you know, that's that's a really good bit of advice. Just let let your moral compass be your navigator, because fundamentally, I've, I mean, I, I, I've had some really good leaders who often, if you break down what they say, they just say do the right thing. And and human beings know what the right thing is. And and you know, from my perspective, if you can do that, you tend to sleep a bit better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so we've got a comment from from Sean. Um, I think it's probably about the money uh, aspect of things. <laughs> yeah. So Sean Sean's just um just pointing out that some people that is their driver. Might be wrong, yeah. but dot dot dot. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know. But I, 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 I'll come back. I mean, Sean's a great guy, right? And I, I think that, you know, if you're clear on what your, your, if you call it your belief system or what your drives are, if you know yourself, that's absolutely fine. It's when, it's when if you haven't quite consciously made that decision, if you haven't made that contract with yourself that that's where you want to go, and then you find yourself driven by it, then, then I just think it creates a degree of conflict within yourself, and, and that can become toxic and unhelpful. Um, but no, I think I think if that's if that's what you're going for, then knock yourself out and, and yeah. you know make, totally. make that contract and go for it. <laughs> Something you said earlier, you you were talking about the some some of the the the, the different problems which we're, which we're having in the world at the moment, and um, and you sort of mentioned sort of nationalism sort of, sort of emerging as well and protectionism in in all the things we're dealing with at the moment um including covid um china trade wars everything like that do you think this is completely the wrong time for for, for countries to be closing their closing themselves in being protectionist um do you think it's counterproductive um look uh, the chinese have uh i think they have two symbols don't they for the word crisis one is danger and one is opportunity <clears throat> and i think you know when when you see i mean any emergence of any form of nationalism you know let's just look at history it's not good right mm -hmm. so 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 yes i would agree that it's a bad thing to be happening if we see that and it's the wrong time for it to be happening but i also think and you look at the power of the black lives matter movement and everything that's come out of that i also think that society is a lot more uh, even in hong kong right it, it, you know society is a lot a, a lot more willing to make a stand mm. and you know, we are not one big liberal democracy. We are not one unified culture and, and state. <laughs> but, but as a planet, I think we are probably closer at, you know, at a human level than we ever have been before. And I think mm. more and more people are understanding that there are macro issues to deal with in a way that we're just not addressing. So, you know, nationalism is is in some ways a sort of state-driven thing. But, but, you know, the digitization of society has meant that 
humankind can connect in a way that that doesn't really matter that you know mm. state might want to be pursuing something else so i think there is a positive in it i think you know certainly all the stuff that we've seen recently uh, and I, i've referred to the the blm uh, activities i think that's a really good thing because i think mm. it's a really a concrete bit of evidence that says where when something that really matters uh is is you know voiced by society society listens and people change and mm. and that i think is what we can uh, we can lean into definitely can i pick up ben from from mm. you there um back really to sort of the leadership themes um two, two things one is um uh interested in in your view when we've got countries like Russia, North Korea, and China, who despite them pleading that absolutely nothing to do with them, there's a lot of cyber attacks going on onto our businesses and the industries that you're dealing with. Um, and then we, we have, you know, quite, quite bold statements about, you know, being a hostile state actor in, in China, you know, by, by Britain. Ooh, big stuff, you know, I mean, Chinese don't like that being, being called out. Interesting view on that. And then I'd love you to come back to that lovely triangle between the the beast, the theatre, and, and being authentic, which I, no, I found no. stuck stuck with me for, for no, months. No, no, very happy to. So look, I mean, forever, you know, our, our planet has been plagued by state actors in some shape or form. Um, I think that the uh, uh, you know the component of cyber that is a relatively recent problem um, makes it a lot easier for those state actors to do everything from within the the boundaries of their own country. Um, you know, I think most modern economies will be will have their next 15 or 20 years defined by their relationship with China. So, you know, do we do we want to make China an enemy? No, as the uh, ambassador said last night from the embassy, that's, that's not where we want to go, right? But but do we want to be seen to tolerate be, you know, tolerance of you know, completely overt and inappropriate activities by those state actors. No, not at all. I think the Home Secretary's activities around imposing sanctions independently is, is the sort of move that Britain is well known for making. And, and I'm proud that we are confident to do those uh, those sorts of activities because they are heard. They are heard around the, around the I mean, they'll be tit for tat, I'm sure. But but my take is we're doing the right thing there. Um, so I'm, I am you know, I'm cautious about, and I don't think America helps in lots of ways in this perspective, because sometimes their approach can be seen to be, or certainly the current leadership, can be seen to be a bit too belligerent, a bit too uh, aggressive. Whereas, I mean, there are lots of very smart Americans and businessmen that I deal with every day who who understand the need to strike a diplomatic commercial balance with uh, with, uh, with all these various territories. Um, so I think, you know, China will, you know, it, it will it will shake the world. Um, as has been said over and over again, starting at the opponent was the first person to say it. So, so we need to we need to work out a balance between, you know, work because they need us as well, right? Um, and you know that that triangle that I've talked to on on many occasions, it, it I think is probably more relevant now than ever before. You know, you, you in your lives and particularly in work, you have to balance the spin of theatre, the the you know the the watching of leadership and fulfilling their demands and their requirements in order to gain political woster and uh, and traction you've got to balance that with just getting on with hard work you know uh, the, the hard work of the beast um and and actually you've then got to do the real world stuff and and real world for most people right now i think is going to be about relationships and trust as, as companies and organizations and countries go through turmoil 
They want to just have a balanced and friendly relationship with people they know they can rely on, either to take risks with them or to help them out. If we can strike that at a corporate level and at a country level, that balance right, I think we're going to be really well positioned to take the uh, opportunistic elements of whatever there is in the future and, and make the most of them. Just a quick one on on um, just thinking about the looming um, thing on the on, on the horizon of Brexit. Yes, <laughs> just sort of uh, coming out of uh, of uh, of COVID, looking towards recovery. What what do you see see happening with with uh, with Brexit, and and uh, um, what's your sort of opinion on how it's being dealt with at the moment? <sighs> it's a, it's a big question, Ben. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think we could do a whole yeah, yeah, <laughs> whole yeah, hour I mean, on it. it but... <laughs> um, I mean, my my instinct is that it will go ahead, um, and I cannot see any any further delays. I think the economic and hmm. political ramifications of any sort of bounce would be uh, would be unheard of, um, and and would be really problematic as well. Um, I'm confident, actually, that the the people involved on both sides recognise that this needs to go through. I mean, if you look at historical negotiations we've had with Europe, they do tend to go through a, a sort of a period of denial and, and bouncing and, and disorganizing and then and then anger and then eventually compromise and solution, you know. So, you know, in some ways, the the uh, the non-economic environment, the, the, the COVID environment is going to hopefully put a bit of pace and sensibility into play. Um, but economically, it's got to land right. Because otherwise, it's just going to be a force multiplier on what's going to be a pretty, pretty tricky set of uh, economic conditions for us as a country, anyway. Um, and what we don't want to be doing is putting any further pressure on our manufacturing or services industry in the forms of tariffs or, or mm. anything that makes it difficult to deal with Europe, because that's just going to really, it's just going to create more noise, and the government's going to be under more pressure to to provide support, where actually we want to be providing support to the to our people. Rather than necessarily to our to our businesses, they they have a role to play in that as well. So we're we're coming towards the end of our time, and before I hand to Ben for the, the final couple of questions, um, any uh, leadership is is very serious at times. We talk about some very serious topics, from Black Lives Matter to Brexit to um, China to um, COVID itself. Um, you've been in lots of difficult situations, and in the midst of the most difficult situations, there's some lovely humour that comes out from people. I don't know if you could remember a, an amusing story. And then perhaps a top tip before we, uh, we hand over to Ben. Um, I think, I mean, there's, there's plenty of funny. I do, it, as you said it, one jumped to mind, which was years ago. I was a very young officer, actually. It was an army one. But uh, um, at a weekend, um, we, we got a phone call from, from uh, intelligence services to say that they thought we'd been targeted by, by some terrorists. And, uh, and they sent a... They sent a description through and I had to sort of get the my senior officer out. I was pretty inexperienced and obviously lacking a little bit of it. And, uh, and I had uh, I had a phone. I had the phone live to special branch who were describing the terrorists. To me. And, uh, and my my senior officer was sort of the other end of another phone saying, right, what's going on? And I also had the guardsman who had seen these people that we thought might have been bad guys. So I was trying to sort of coordinate all three. and. Uh, and uh, and the senior officer was listening in, and I, I said to uh, I said to special branch guys, right, you know, give us a description. And I remember they said one of them said, well, he had ginger hair. One of the guys has got ginger hair. And so I said to the senior officer, you know, one of the guys got ginger hair. And uh, and then we said to the guardsman, did he have ginger hair? 
And the guardsman came out and said, no, no, not at all. He didn't have ginger hair. And my senior officer just barked back, why not? <laughs> and, uh, and I can remember just, and, and the reason I say that is because at the height of height of stress, we were sort of all all quite, you know, feeding off each other. All, all those, really. And uh, the thing that I remembered about that individual is he was a very smart, great guy. And the thing that I really liked, in the moment we dealt with it, it's all a false alarm, it's all fine. But I love the fact that straight after that, he was the one that was laughing at. He brought it into the room. And, uh, and and just said, you know, I don't know what I was thinking about. You know, why did I say that? He <laughs> such a human touch that he didn't try and pass it on to somebody else. You just you found yourself sort of I think that for me is the is that is that you know the, the the wisdom for me is that authenticity piece. You know, know your limits, be yourself, ask for help if you need it, but also you know recognize what you're good at and double down on that. And and you know. Be, a, be yourself with skill and all these other phrases. But I think, I think there's it's just being authentic. Just be who you are and people will see that and, and then you can work with them. Fantastic. It's been really good talking to you, Alistair. It's been, been an absolute Thank pleasure. You. Really, really interesting. Just want to say thanks to all the people who, 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 who've listened. Um, love the comments and there's, there's, uh, there's lots of thanks on there um, for, for you, Alistair. And, and uh, thanks to Darren and Sean for, for the questions. So final question, we always ask just um, to, to close out, if you've got a book recommendation, either something which you're, you're currently reading, which obviously uh, in lockdown, it's been, been um, a, a good yeah, pastime. Uh, so I've, uh, I'm going to break the rules, right? I've got two, one which I've just read and one which I'm about to start. The one I've just read is The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. I'm sure lots mm. of people read it, but just a reminder of how brilliant the United Kingdom is. When, we, <laughs> we, you know, when you're up against it, as we are now, you know, a few people with the right with the right approach can make a huge difference. And uh, and that story is just a, a worthwhile reminder that, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, we did that. Um, so that that was uh, one. And then the other one, which I've just been given is um, by Rennie Edo Lodge. And it's called Why I'm Not Talking to White People About Race. Um, and it's 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 part of this sort of journey that I think many of us are going to go on, which is just to try and understand a bit more about ourselves and where where we need to develop in that space. And, I think, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going to go with it, but it's uh, it's come recommended and I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, uh, I've uh, just started that also. <laughs> but uh, Alistair, from Ben and myself, thank you very much. Uh, fascinating conversation on, on many conversations and uh, others like uh, Ian Taylor and various other users say thanks, Alistair, for great sessions. And no, no, thank you. Really, enjoyed, really it. enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks Alistair. Thank So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>